It all started with the students drinking lemonade in the canteen of St. Bernardine High in Bellevue, Washington. The third burglar account was created, exposing everyone who pooped their pants that day. Three more poop-related attacks, and one false accusation later, the person who showed the students they're full of shit will finally be exposed. The question we need answer today is, who is the third burglar? The question we need answer today is, who shat in the lemonade? Gross, gross, gross! But that was my first How was that your first? It's like, it's literally written on the screen. Who is the third burglar? Come on, go into the box. The question we need answer today was that look like a twitch. Another question we need to answer today is why is Brian Cranston daughter not in many other things? Why was this her like prime prime time? <laughs> it's very hard to believe you don't take drugs when you behave like this, okay? Okay, mom! Okay. The question we need to answer today. <laughs> How many times can you repeat it? <sighs> the question we need to answer today is who? Who made the poop? Who made the poop? <laughs> All over again. No, no, the whole intro now. All over again. Today, friends, I'm dropping you yet again into another fictional piece of content, into another fake crime story, you could say. And this week, we are moving away from books, from young adult books, really, and we are going into a plot that has nothing to do with young adultery, because it is the plot of The American Vandal, which is this Netflix series. It only had two seasons, to be honest. Jimmy Tetro, everybody behind this show, if you wanted to produce 20, just I want to reassure you that I would watch it. If there was 50 seasons of this, I would watch it. If you watch this channel because of the ways I tell stories, because of the weird sense of humor, quote-unquote, it has been told worse. It has been called worse. This is completely up your lane, okay? This is the best thing that is out there on Netflix. It's technically a mockumentary and it has two seasons, right? We're gonna be talking about season two today. So let me just drop you straight into the plot and then if you like it, if you like it, well, go watch it, first of all, and then watch the season one as well, because impeccable. The production on this had me guessing. It had everything, all of the elements that I wanted it to have. So without further ado, we are the brownout. <laughs> we learn from all of these students giving their interviews in hindsight that November the 6th was just like any other day at Bellevue Washington High. It's a small town where everybody knew everybody and nobody locked their doors. And all of the people in this school lit up a room and you know that that signifies tragedy. That didn't happened. That was just my addition to the script. Well, we find out from this girl that that day, just like any other day, she chose to wear tights. But she wishes, she really wishes that she didn't. We learn from the school police. There's these police officers that do mostly like traffic duty and parole the school because it's rich people shit, okay? This is not like your small 
poor European school. We learned from them that they were doing their traffic duty, there was a fire drill scheduled for that afternoon, so nothing seemed out of the ordinary. That was until the lunchtime. It was a chicken finger Monday, and the chicken fingers at this school were apparently delicious. But somehow, still not everybody had them for lunch. They still had a choice of pasta, chicken fingers, spaghetti, and different drink options. So during this interview, we learned what each and every student had for lunch. Spaghetti and lemonade, pasta and lemonade, chicken fingers and lemonade. You're spotting the pattern. Lemonade seems hella sus. It seems to be a problem. Why is it a problem, Maya? Well, because as soon as they sat down in that canteen and started sipping on that lemonade, suddenly the mood in the room has changed. Everybody started clenching their stomachs, clenching their buttocks, and then rushing towards the toilet. But not everybody would make it to that toilet. On the interview tapes that we see of them, the students said that they will never, ever forget the facial expressions until the day that they die. Of all of those students in the canteen, once they realized there is a problem, the laxatives were already running through their system and there was no escape. But of course, the toilets, as we learned from a nun, because this is a Catholic school, the toilets weren't designed for that many people. They weren't designed for the brownout. So, you just see videos upon videos of these students just pooping wherever they can, in the bins, by the wall, some of them just making it in front of a cubicle. 911 calls are made and the students finally get out of there, their parents are called and they get home. And then, as you can imagine, this is quite a traumatic experience, okay? It might be humorous to you and me, might seem humorous, but it was very real to those actors that had to be posing as if they're taking a shit. And it was also very real to my husband, who next to me uttered as I was watching this and making notes, that can't be real. No shit, my man. No shit, Sherlock. It's, no, people actually volunteered for the documentary to be made of this. It's a documentary. And so they go home, and as embarrassed as they are, it fades in comparison with how traumatized they're about to be because they find out that there is an Instagram account created under the third burglar that commemorates this whole event, that commemorates Brownout and makes sure nobody ever forgot about it. And if you're thinking about just like some cute account announcing that this is going to happen, that's not what this account is. There's videos and pictures of every single student as they're by the wall, inside of the toilet, just pooping everywhere around the school, and they're all tagged. So it seems like an inside job, if you ask me, to know all of these students' accounts. And the first thing that popped into my armchair detective head is, well, it can't be a teacher, can it? Because why would the teacher know all of the social media accounts of the students? And another conclusion that the documentary makers of this Netflix series will make at that point is that it's not an accident, because somebody's taking credit for it. They even left a business card of sorts behind. 
It was left on the lemonade dispenser, the scene of the crime, and it's just a really brown, black-ish color card with a picture of the poop, and it says, oh my god, this is so appropriate, just wait a sec. Yeah, I have a third burglar. This is this is what's on the card. It's like my pillow, but like the third burglar. Look at that. Oh my god, so appropriate. Where have you been my whole life? <laughs> Literally so neglected and now there's a purpose for it. Look at it. So yeah, that was on a business card left on the scene of the crime. Oh, you're so dusty because you're so neglected and unused. So let me just put it behind because it has caused a lot of, a lot of hassle to this recording. <laughs> So what we know is that this person definitely wants to take credit for it, meaning that he also wants an audience. But before we can even start to unravel this mystery on who the third burglar was, we need to meet our documentary makers. And if this is not your first American Vandal Rodeo, you might have already met them in season one, because these are the infamous Peter Maldonado and Sam Eklund, who already cleared the name of the first American Vandal, Dylan Maxwell. Dylan Maxwell, played by Jamie Tetro, which, life according to Jamie, is the most underrated gem out there on YouTube. Just go after this, follow Life According to Jimmy, watch Jimmy Tetro's skits. It's truly the mind days. The mind days all over again is what that channel gives me. It gives me so much joy. Jimmy, if you ever make anything else, please hit me up. Yeah, he definitely will. The person with like millions of subscribers will hit you a little smaller shit. Anyways, so the first season dealt with the exoneration, if you wish, of Dylan Maxwell, who was falsely accused of vandalizing a bunch of cars by drawing pictures of dicks on them. It's all very serious. You might think it's not so very serious topics. This exoneration, of course, worked into Pete's and Sam's favor. They made it to Trevor Noah's show. I just love how much thought went into this. They even appeared on the Trevor Noah show. They worked on solving other crimes. But nothing that was really in their inbox at the time really had their attention. They really didn't want to just be solving any crimes that anybody on the street can solve, because that was too easy. That is until they got an email from Chloe Lyman, and there was a video attached to it, and we see it on the screen. Chloe is sitting in front of a camera pleading with Pete and Sam to take on this case, because we learned that somebody has already confessed to this crime, to the brownout, and that somebody is Chloe's friend, Kevin McLean. This is a side note, but I need you to believe me. As soon as, even when I watched this series for the first time, which was probably 2018 when it came out, because I was obsessed with Jimmy Tetro and everything he produced. So I think first season came 2017. It doesn't matter. When I first watched Chloe appear on the screen, I immediately googled her. And she is played by... Brian Cranston's daughter, like real life Heisenberg's daughter. I was so, because I was so impressed. I was like, I hope this girl gets more roles. Just from like a minute of her on screen. It's those Cranston genes, okay? They have some potential. It's not like when you see on the screen, you're like, wow, what a big discovery. Even though Chloe kind of was that for me. But it's just like, they have something specific in terms of how they act in terms of like what they do with their face. It's a very specific type of acting. I was so impressed. Chloe, I hope you get to like be in, in hundreds and thousands more movies because 
you deserve the best. I was really buying into Chloe's role in this role. She's buying Kansas' daughter. Put some respect to Chloe's name, okay? Wow, that was threatening. Well, before we learn what the producers are to find out, we learn about the investigation that was done by that school police, you know, the ones that are doing traffic stops and also are apparently detectives for these kind of circumstances. Well, they never had to deal with something like this. So, they had a couple of leads at this point. We learn a bit about the school, about value, that it is one of those rich schools where most of the money is coming from its donors. And it mostly is that way because of their basketball team. So, this is filthy rich people that go to this school, to the degree that even Chloe is super rich and these producers, Sam and Pete, will end up staying at her mansion and they will develop this whole investigation room in one of the huge-ass rooms at Chloe's crib. And, of course, as it so happens with the crimes like this, these donors, the students' parents, well, they suddenly start pulling the money out from the school because they want a culprit. They want this to be investigated because their kids at home are telling them they don't want to go to school. They don't want to be publicly humiliated again. They don't want to go, and even when they do, they don't want to go to the canteen. They don't know what the next scene of the crime might be because the person that is responsible for it hasn't been caught yet. As this probably isn't your first fake crime or true crime video that you're watching on the internet, you know that this particular combination, rich school and rich parents that are actively paying for the children's tuitions, the rich donors that need to donate, the whole basketball team, there's a lot at stake. There's a reputation that they need to preserve. And what does that mean? That they are going to have to accuse somebody at all costs, by all means necessary. They're going to have to find a culprit. So, at first, when you look at this from my point of view, there's a couple logical culprits, which we learn from these kids that are giving the interviews. There is Savannah, who is obsessed with the school lemonade. She cannot have enough of it. She has it every day for lunch. But that day, on the day of the brownout, she chose to bring her own Capri Sun. Like, whoa. whoa that's, that's just next level. That is... That she must be looked into. Then there is a guy... Must be my favorite character. There's a kid with the fetish, okay? His name is Jared. It's very important. <laughs> it's literally gonna be mentioned once. He would like to watch certain videos. So he would be spending his whole days in the library watching, you know, the two girls, one cup kind of videos. Yeah, in a school, in the public eye. Kid, I understand the fetish, but like, wait until home, unless it is a serious addiction. In which case, get that checked out. The fetish kid, he had an alibi. So, 16 days pass by, and they have looked into all of the obvious suspects. But that day, we see a recording of what will be an interrogation, because this guy called Tanner walks into the room to speak to the two school police officers. And he says he knows who is behind the brownout, because he is his best friend incriminating. I know. So, who is he accusing? He's accusing his best friend since kindergarten, Kevin McLean. 
It's really weighing on Penner. You can really see through those interrogation tapes. He doesn't want to be there, but he is as scared as all of the other students that Kevin might strike again. And Kevin might have a pretty solid motive. As solid as they get. If you were to really look into it, you can see that Kevin fits a profile of a person they're looking for to a T. It is somebody with a strong motivation, somebody that possibly might have been bullied by all of these students, that might be looking for revenge. And boy, has Kevin been bullied by everybody in this school. To start it off with, Kevin is a weirdo. He belongs to this electronic music band, I don't really know what you would call it, where they perform with horse masks on. They look like a bunch of Bojack Horseman's wannabes when they have those masks on, and they play the music that nobody really wants to listen to, under the name Horsehead Experimental. I definitely think this is Bojack Horseman influence. Apart from that, you can see videos upon videos on screen that we are presented with of all of these students bullying him, just throwing fruits at him so that he can do the fruit ninja action of just, like, repelling those fruits in time. And, of course, you can see visibly that Kevin is upset during these videos, that this isn't something that he is really complacent with. This isn't something that he instigated. I couldn't take this part seriously because I had a guy before my husband, long time before my husband, really, uni days, really long time ago, that used to call himself Fruit Ninja because of his um, sexual prowesses, his technique, his technique and. um yeah, that was something. Guys giving themselves monikers really is something. Yeah, keep that up. Keep that up. Keep that up. Keep it public. Make as many people know your skills. <laughs> I love how you're saying you couldn't take this part seriously. Like, everything else, I did not laugh once. No, no, no. Just serious face all throughout. Like, that, those people with Botox who can't even laugh. Well, you're gonna be the opposite of Botox, okay? Anyways, so Kevin, right? He's a smart ass. He Hermione, Hermione, he Hermione Granger's the every room that he's in. He has videos of himself online speaking in British accent, and he's a connoisseur of all of these teas. So basically, it's a pain in the ass. And he definitely has the motive. But did he have the means? Does Tanner actually have something really incriminating on his best friend? And by means, I mean laxatives. I'm so sorry. Why do kids in the UK leave their schools before even 3.30? When does your school finish? We have to slay ourselves back home in Serbia, okay? Our school is from like 8 in the morning to like 5 or 6 in the afternoon, depending on how many classes we have. And we still had so much time to waste. How does this even work when it comes to parents? Well, okay, so... Wherever you in the story, the means. How did Kevin... How did Kevin find himself in the possession of laxatives? Enough laxatives 
to spike all of the drinks in the school. Well, his best friend has the answer for that. He didn't personally witness Kevin buy these laxatives, but he accompanied him to the local doses, the local supermarket, where they went in. And we see videos plenty of footage here of Kevin going into doses on previous occasions with Tanner or with somebody else, and he just goes to the sample guy that is sampling meatballs usually at this supermarket, and he milks up to like eight meatballs, because this guy just can't figure out that it's Kevin each and every time. Like, he walks in, changes up the accent, changes up the appearance. But on this day, he literally walks into doses, doesn't go to the sample guy, just rushes through, goes to one counter, gets whatever he needs, puts it into the bag, and gets out. And Tanner is there literally like, um... Okay, so he never gets the answer as to what is in the bag, but he suspects that it was laxatives, just because of how shady Kevin behaved. Another very atypical thing that happened on the day of the brownout was Kevin's behavior in that canteen. First thing that he did, he went, obviously, bought his lunch. You have to pay for this lemonade or any drink and food that you want to have. Rich people, they can't get, like, you can't even have free canteen meal. So, he bought this lunch, and as he's walking with the tray, there is the staff, obviously, also has lunch at that canteen, including the nuns and the monks, or brothers, whatever. So, there's this really old brother, really old guy, that I will just be calling old guy from this point on, that is the member of the staff, and Kevin takes this really weird zigzag walk, to what Tanner at first thinks is the same desk where he always sits in that canteen. But we realize later that this is not even where he's headed. But as he's doing that, he purposely knocks over this old guy's drink. And then stops, you know, pauses there, and goes back to the drinks area to change up his drink. But he doesn't buy him lemonade, which is what the old guy was drinking. He buys him a horchata. And an horchata already costs more money. So why? Why change up the drink? Why spill this drink in the first place if he didn't know what was going to happen? If he wasn't the person to spike everybody's drinks? Then he gives the old guy an horchata, he picks up the tray, and doesn't head to the table where he would usually sit. No, he sits right next to Nick. And now that matters, because Nick and Kevin have been the mortal enemies for the past decade, you could really say. I have no idea I invented that. Why? Well, hmm. Now, this is really the nail in Kevin McLean's coffin. Not to be too dramatic, but Nick ruined Kevin McLean's life forever. Kevin, we learn, wasn't always so weird. He wasn't this posh pretend person who had no friends, who everybody bullied and called Fruit Ninja. In fact, he actually had friends. Chloe was his friend, Tanner was his friend from the kindergarten, but he also had quite a few other friends. He was just normal. But that all changed when he was tagged out of a game. And as he was on the bleachers, which is the word that I have learned through a Taylor Swift song, and I'm not ashamed, I have no regrets, he was sitting on the bleachers after being tagged out of the game, and then suddenly, as he got up, 
There was something on his buttocks that looked like soil, but it could have also probably been poo. And from that point on, of course, everybody took pictures, everybody took videos, and he was called Shitstain McLean. And you would have thought that happened years ago, when they were kids. People probably forgot all about it. Well, to add insult to injury, a picture of Shitstain McLean was posted three days before the brownout. Three days before the incident. And it got some traction. It got some likes and shares online on the social media. So Kevin, so far, looks like the perfect suspect for it. After this chat with Tanner, Kevin is called in to chat with the school police. On November the 21st, 2017, Kevin walks through those doors, and immediately he is on the defensive. They ask him what happened on that day, and he's quiet, and they're like, Kevin, what happened on that day? And he's like, I thought that was a rhetorical question. Like, we all know what happened on that day. It is vivid in our memories, because we were all tagged on social media. And then they're like, okay, smartass, so where were you during lunch? <laughs> to which Kevin responds, would it surprise you that during lunch I was at lunch, having lunch, because that is what you do during lunch. And they're like, okay, well, we're clearly not gonna go anywhere. So they kind of suggest a theory, because as I mentioned, there was a fire drill that was to happen in the second period on that day. So sort of just before they were to be let out for lunch. And if the fire alarm was to happen just before the brownout, with the food obviously being kept in the kitchen area with the fire exit, during the fire drill, nobody's gonna hear the buzzer that you would to trigger if you were to get out of that door in the kitchen area. We start from the get-go in this conversation seeing how they're steering him in such a way that he answers with just yes or no, or if he doesn't answer the question correctly, they steer him in the right way so that he does. So they say, so this is the time when the laxity is ready, and he just kind of like nods his head. And you see the good cop, bad cop strategy that they're implementing, trying to threaten him. Like, did you enjoy Nick pooping his pants? Did you like your nickname, Shitstain McLean? Did you like the looks on the faces of all of your bullies when they were finally shitting their pants? And they just keep pressuring and pressuring until Kevin finally breaks and confesses. But he doesn't confess only to the brownout, but also two other poop-related times. We have a serial vandal on our hands. His grandma can't believe it. His sister can't believe it. They can't believe that he confessed to all of the crimes. Because, you see, if Kevin was to have committed all three crimes, then tell me, why did he shit his own pants? But with the confession came a catch. They are going to be more lenient towards him. They, of course, have to press charges because this was technically almost an act of terrorism to a certain degree. But he is going to be refined to his home with an ankle monitor and be expelled from school. But, you know, he doesn't have to serve any time. So this might be why he confessed. And with the episode two, Kevin gets a spotlight and we get a POV from Kevin. And we also finally get a bit of a spotlight of our producers because they sit Kevin down. And he 
tells us exactly the situation that he was in, exactly what was going on and what is on tape, and the way that these police officers steered him towards a false confession. The on-screen text comes in telling us that between 1989 and 2015, new DNA testing technology led to the reversal of 1,532 homicide convictions. Not just that, but 25% of those exonerated previously confessed to their crimes. This is why this show is just so brilliant, because all of these bits that would belong to a real true crime documentary are included here, and then they're followed up by just, like, the funniest fucking shit. Like, Kevin telling us his own side of the story, and in particular, starting from that old guy accident and how he replaced it with an orchata. And he explains this decision behind him purchasing an orchata, because he didn't want to just replace it with a lemonade. There is a price markup, but it's worth it, in Kevin's opinion, because orchata is a superior drink. We learn from Kevin that what the tape doesn't state is how long they actually kept him there. And this is something that, again, is common in real-life interrogations, where they make sure that you're exhausted, that you're kept in the interrogation room for hours, sometimes that you're sleep-deprived, that you don't have food or water. And this is what happened in Kevin's case. These police officers kept him there long after the school hours were over. So his grandma was worried. She even came along to pick him up. She just didn't understand what is going on. Of course, then there was betrayal by his own best friend. And then at some point during this investigation, the school's dean of students, Mrs. Wexler, comes in so that he can stretch his legs, have a break. Fifty minutes later, he returns. And up until this point, Kevin was pretty much a dickhead, right? He was doing that, like, oh, rhetorical questions. Where I was? I was clearly at lunch. But then, as soon as he spoke with the dean of students, suddenly he comes into the room and he seems broken. He seems to some degree ready to confess. And he gives us the perspective of what happened when he actually spoke to the dean of students. She promised him that she won't let him go down for a crime he didn't commit. And if he cooperated, school won't actually even press the charges. So it won't ever even reach the local police station. It will never be a criminal record. This Mrs. Wexler, who is a piece of work, <laughs> really did not like her. She is a dangerous freaking human on this show. She told him he's only gonna get two weeks suspension, maybe an ankle bracelet. If he doesn't confess, which should be his only way out, his grandma is gonna be on her own because he's gonna end up going to prison. So, of course, this kid who lives with his grandma and his sister is having those two people in his mind once he's back in that room. Now, why would somebody with a reputation, the dean of students, somebody in a higher-up position in this school, lead somebody else to confess? Why would they steer him that way? Well, because he confessed 15 days after the brownout, which means 15 days of all of the threats, 15 days of her getting emails, of her getting calls from the parents, saying they're going to pull their kids out of the school, all of that money that was suddenly at stake and about to just vanish in front of her eyes. 
she really needed a culprit, and she found him in somebody who was snitched on, who was bullied, who would have had a motive, and who people would buy that he did it. Speaking of crimes, we finally find out what the second one was. And the second one had to do with a piñata. <laughs> They're getting more and more disgusted. You thought the lemonade was going to top it? No, because they had an English teacher. This English teacher is a piece of work. All of the staff in this school are actually nuts. I love the English teacher. She's, she's so problematic. So problematic. It, she gives me the teacher that watched Pretty Little Liars and wanted to replicate Ezra and Arya relationship. It's exactly those vibes. So, this teacher was obsessed with... What's his name? Vonnegut? Vonnegut is a writer. Google it. Didn't really <laughs> Google him enough to note down what he wrote and stuff. But anyways, it's one of those classic writers. But she was obsessed with this writer to that degree that she would make... create a bust of his, sort of like his face, in that piñata shape. And then, each year, they would hang this piñata in the middle of the classroom, and the students would, like, bang against it, and then the candy would come out. I don't know why you would demolish a statue, a bust of the writer that you admire. Maybe she secretly hated him. Doesn't matter. This piñata is up and ready to be busted. And from the perspective of the students, you can see how, well, they see a nutty teacher who spends her own money to buy candy, to decorate this whole bust, to create this whole piñata, so they're like, okay, free candy, and also we don't learn English that day, I guess, we just do this the whole class. So everybody is like kind of like fighting, volunteering, who is going to be the first person to punch this piñata. And it falls onto the kid that is going to get spotlight a bit later, but it is this desperately religious child, okay? And he's like, lucky me! So he punches it one time, the candy still doesn't come out, punches it the second time, and then when he punches it the third time and he is blindfolded, right? He just hears the screams. He hears everybody scream, and as he pulls the blindfold off, He's like, nobody screams like this for candy. I knew, I knew something was up, because nobody screamed like this for candy. They were all covered in cat shit, okay? Pinata was hidden at a certain part of this Vonnegut statue, and then one hit was just one too many, and the cat shit was sprinkled all over the students. We are back from witnessing the piñata incident to the investigation room, where Kevin is presented with a piñata, and they ask him, tell us how you did it. How did you put the cat poop into it? So Kevin takes the piñata, puts it on the floor, and starts taking his pants off as if, like, he shed right into it. And they're like, no, 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 Kevin. They put the piñata back on the table. They're like, no. First of all, it's not human poop. And they're kind of leading him to be like, dog. And they're like, mm -mm. So he says cat. And they're like, 
Yes, you see, you knew it all along. Now, tell us how you placed it. You didn't shit in it, right? Which part did you place it in? And he's literally like pointing to different parts until he points towards the shoulder. They're like, that is correct. You're cooperating finally while they're clearly on camera leading him to confess. Just as we are getting enraged, we get a professional opinion from one of the people that works for the actual police force, saying how the suspects would usually confess to the information apparently only a criminal would know. And then, you know, everybody would be like, well, obviously it is him. But instead, when we actually review those tapes of false confessions, we can see that the police was clearly feeding him the information that only a criminal would know, because not only a criminal knows this information, but the police is also privy to it. The piñata crime also ended with the third burglar taking credit for it, and of course he leaves that third burglar card behind. So, in this investigation room we see that they are leading Kevin to say where was the card left. At first he says it was left at the teacher's desk, but then they're like, come on, Kevin, that's not where it's left. You know where it was left. And eventually, by the system of elimination, he says, Pinat, and they're like, I mean, that wasn't that hard, right? You did it in such a way to get back at all of your classmates, and one crime just wasn't enough. And exactly because you were bullied, exactly because of everything you were suffering, you left that card behind, because you wanted them to know that you're taking credit for it. You wanted them to know that it was you. And then we go back to Kevin and his explanation of literally everything. The bullying to begin with, because that appears to be the strongest motive. Here we learn that Kevin hasn't actually been called Shitstain McLean for years. The Fruit Ninja videos, if you actually watch them in full, not just the cut-out, cropped version that this school body police crap had, you can see that he's a willing participant. And Kevin, being smart as that he says, states for all of us that bullying actually requires what? An unwilling participant, because they're being bullied. And he clearly isn't. You can see that he's playing along. The only video where he seems maybe remotely pissed off is where they throw a watermelon at him. They're like, come on, you can't throw a watermelon at him. He's like, wow, that is their strongest piece of evidence. About the Dorsey trip, he says he can't remember. Like, it was two weeks ago. Do you remember what you got when you went to, like, Sainsbury's yesterday? You probably even don't. And that was yesterday. This is two weeks ago. We see multiple people, including Kevin's own sister, saying he is weird, but he actually likes this new personality that he has taken on. It's not that he was bullied, there was shit say McLean, and then suddenly he has completely shifted his persona. It is sort of like his creative way of expressing himself. And that's why we have so many videos of him speaking about tea, changing the accent, speaking about proper mannerisms, because that is his way of creating content, in a way. Another piece of evidence that was used to prove the bullying part was that a couple of people dressed as Kevin for Halloween. I think they had, like, a picture of one of them. To which Kevin's response was, you can clearly see that these are my clothes. Like, this is my Sherlock Holmes-like hat. This is my cravat. 
Like, I have clearly landed these people. Land is a word? Immigrant vibes. I have clearly given this person these clothes. So, again, I am a willing participant in this huge-ass bullying thing that you are accusing me of. Now we go back to the interrogation room, because we have to speak about the third crime. The third crime committed by the third burglar was the ship launcher. So, you know the machines that they use to, like, dispense shirts in the US on, like, school games? Yeah, well, there was a pep rally before the school game, the basketball game. And you see all of these, like, school-famous basketball players coming in, shouting out, like, getting people hyped, the cheerleaders are there. And then, at their sign, these shirts are expelled at the lucky or not-so-lucky students. And you guessed it, there is a couple of shirts with the third burglar, Insinia, to which these students say, wow, speaking about limited edition. This show is hilarious, so brilliant, so many points, please watch it. But of course, more things come out of the shit launchers, and more things including poop. It's cat shit yet again. And we go back to the investigation room. They question Kevin. Kevin, how did you put the shit into the shit launcher? So he puts the shirt launcher onto the ground and again pretends like he is going to poop into it. They're like, no, 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 Kevin. They put the shirt launcher back onto the desk and they're like, it wasn't human shit. You know that, Kevin. Why are you lying to us? steering him again to say what kind of shit it is. Now, how did you do it? Because you have to fold shirts in a particular way, obviously, then you have to put cat poop in between them, and you can see in the video recordings of this interrogation that Kevin doesn't even know how the shirts are folded in order to fit into the shirt launcher. Not to mention the access, because Kevin is a nerd, right? He isn't this athlete. He doesn't have the access. He isn't like a gym guy who has the access to all of the areas there. He is not the person who is bringing all of the money from the donors, okay? He isn't the freaking basketball player. So how in the fucking life of God would he have accessed this place that felt safe to so many students? Because it wasn't a canteen where, okay, maybe they wouldn't have heard him go back because of the fire alarm. It wasn't the English classroom where he had a good relationship with the English teacher, so he would have had the access to it. This is the gym. And nobody has the answers to that. And at this point, all of the interviews that you see of the kids are sort of not buying into this false confession. They know that Kevin isn't this person who was behind this purely because of this last crime. They're like, okay, we might have been buying it about the brownout, but, like, this crime definitely was not committed by Kevin. And they're describing this crime... It's just so genius. They're, they're saying, like, you know, at first they seemed to have been sprayed by something, so they thought it was gas, but then they didn't know it was poop until somebody shouted, and then they knew. Like, as if it didn't smell like freaking cat shit. The nun describes it, saying it is poop dusting. It seems like it was broken to particles. <laughs> to which, before you know it is cat shit, you're really trying to figure out how somebody converted their own to particles. No? Nobody else? Okay. 
guilty as charged. I think about shit a lot. This is why we are here. This is truly why I'm doing this. Throwing it, shoving it upon you. So at this point, all of his friends or not so friends, everybody that apparently bullied him, all of the students in the school have honed in on this false confession. They don't think that Kevin is responsible. But then we hear the opinion of the police officer, one of the two that was questioning him, saying that it isn't false confession. It is just facts that are stacked one upon the other until the truth comes out. And I mean, come on, his own friend snitched on him. And also his own friend was at Dorsey's when they bought the laxatives. So this is finally where our producers come in, Sam and Pete, and they go to Dorsey's. Because that is the easiest thing to look into and to see if the school actually even did their due diligence. To find out if Dorsey's sold laxatives at all. So they go in, we see them in these doses, we see them in the pharmacy section, they're speaking with like the staff, they're asking like, do you sell laxatives anywhere? And from Tenor, from that confession, we know which aisles Kevin also went to. So they ask the pharmacist, like, are laxatives sold here? And they say no, like, it doesn't have the pharmacy section. Basically, the only thing that has laxatives in this store is this candy, like some chewy gummy bears. Even the brief glance at these gummy bears would make you believe that if this is the only product the Dossi says that has laxatives, well, this wasn't it. Because the lemonade would change consistency, it would change the flavor, because the gummy bears are flavored. Yes, according to the Amazon reviews, they make you poop like crazy. But also now, these filmmakers are thinking, well, the school didn't even bother to verify this information. So they just really wanted a culprit and they didn't care who falls down for it. The question that arises, and has probably arisen in our minds for quite some time as watching this video, is, well, why would Tanner lie? Why would he say that it was most definitely laxatives without him corroborating this information, without him even knowing that Dosis sells laxative? It's like one thing that the school didn't do their due diligence, but why did Tanner walk in and accuse one of his best friends of this crime without, again, having supporting evidence. And here is where we learn about the skip day. Did I understand what this thing was about? No, I think I switched off. But from what I gather, it is this day where people skip school because they get to be hosts to exchange students and then they do all of these activities like they eat American pizza and then drink like bottles of vodka and then it all has to end with a puzzle. Like making a puzzle of someone's mom. <laughs> it's just bizarre. But of course it has to go in that order. They have to be wasted by that point because it's super hard. They literally rented this flat, this Airbnb, in order to have this party. And you see, Tanner was at the party, but Kevin wasn't. And this might have led to some jealousy about Kevin not being invited. And that day, the police was called, and they broke the whole skip day off. They had to leave that Airbnb. So Tanner always thought it was Kevin who called the police. So while fuming, just after skip day, 
Tanner goes to Kevin's house and he loses it on Kevin, saying like how he's jealous, he has no friends, he doesn't hang out with anybody. And Kevin loses it right back at him and he kicks him out of the horse head band because the band consisted of three members, Kevin, Chloe and Tanner. So, hey, let's speak. Really intense, really intense scene. And then the next scene, of course, beats that intensity right away because we learn <laughs> that Kevin replaced Tanner with a child. I don't know. This is actually a famous actor that plays this child. Like, I have seen him in multiple young adult shows, which is what I have been watching recently. But this kid is like 10, 13, whatever. And uh, Kevin is saying, I mean, it's a really great opportunity for us to finally breach into the bar mitzvah's territory, you know. So far, we were performing at school parties and that didn't seem to work, but right now, bar mitzvahs are in and this child is our in. But of course, you can see how Tanner might have lost it because he was literally replaced with a child. Here we go back to the string board, where now Sam and Pete are drawing up some theories. They're looking at different people, and they're looking at Tanner, because, you see, they think Tanner was butthurt. He didn't go to the police, he didn't go to the school board, he watched three crimes happen, and he doesn't snitch on his best friend. But it's only when skip day happens, and it's only when he's kicked out of the band that he was in for years, and replaced with a child. That's the only time that he goes to the police. Suspicious. Snitches. Snitches need to die. Wow, okay. A very dramatic. They need to learn how to do better. I snitched once and I will never forget the feeling. I will never forget the feeling. And like, if you don't have that feeling, if you snitch on somebody, you need to be hospitalized. <laughs> you need some therapy, because if it's not the worst feeling that you have, that you snitch on somebody and you wonder for, for what, for what fucking reason, then I don't know how you live with yourself. <laughs> so traumatic over nothing. So where are they? Where are the producers? Here they loop us in on something that we didn't know to this degree before, and that is that every crime would come with a warning day. So it would come with a warning post on the socials and then an aftermath post. And here we see that there were two warning posts on November the 30th and December the 4th. And this was after the sheet launcher. So two warnings and nothing. No crime has been committed. This was after Kevin was already expelled and at house arrest. So that is suspicious. And now the two of them are divided, Sam and Pete. Sam shows Peter the most damning evidence, which is the footage of the brownout. And here he points to Kevin's behavior. Because yes, Kevin did shit his pants. Inevitably, we have the proof. But he seems to be clenching and then sweating. So the others, it comes natural, right? Laxatives hit your system and you like have diarrhea then and there. You can't stop it. But with Kevin, it seems like he's putting on an act. It seems like there's clenching and there's sweating. It seems like he is putting a bit more into an act. And this literally lasts for a couple of minutes, where Sam explains that it's sweating. So this is sweating, this is clenching. Come on, repeat it after me. Sweating, clenching. He squeezed one out. Clearly, Pete, he squeezed one out. There's forced confessions, there's forced thirds. There's a lot to digest. 
And this episode ends with a video, the video that got them interested in this case in the first place, the video that Chloe recorded from her own bedroom, wanting to exonerate Kevin. And she says that she knows that Kevin isn't guilty because she knows who he is. The question immediately pops into your head. Why was Chloe ignored? Was she silent or was she silenced? How does she know? And if she raised this with somebody, why did they not believe her? Well, the way she knows who the third burglar is, is because she was at the vending machine, just waiting for the person in front of her to just buy Lucozade, Gatorade, whatever. Do we sell Gatorade? That's something that I haven't freaking googled. Can you find Gatorade anywhere in the UK? And does it even taste nice for me to even look for it? Anyways, you answer me that in the comments. So, she is waiting in front of a vending machine for somebody to buy their drink, and as they open a wallet to take the coins out, she sees what? The third burglar's card. And she knows. She knows those eyes. They come with that Zorro mask, not quite like my pillow there. She knows those eyes. She would recognize them anywhere. And the person in front of her, well, even if she was to have never spoken with this guy, which, as we will learn, will be impossible, he is one of the most famous people in the school, because he is the unbeatable, the most loved basketball player, Demarcus Tillman. We get so much footage of Demarcus on this show. It is as if he was one of the people behind it. We see his coach and his own father speaking about his speed. Then we have a zoom in on Demarcus who says it'd be harder to ask what his weaknesses were because he doesn't have any, so he can't really think of any. He's just so great. He's just friendly with everybody in school. He's the person that jokes with everybody, that everybody wants to have pictures with. And he is a competitor above all. This whole third episode, everybody that they interview speaking about Demarcus, it could have truly been his own documentary. We see the footage of him playing basketball at ballinsiders.com. We see that he is destined to make it. He comes from the outskirts, but then he travels every day. He travels for about an hour to come to school to go to practice. And everything really depends on the practice. If he is ever to be in a need of a sick day or to skip a test or to have his grades bumped up, he can just go to his coach and the coach would excuse him for everything. He's got that high basketball IQ, according to him, of course. And you'll see he has a signature move, because, of course, every good basketball player does, right? I don't know shit about sports. His signature move is a violin. It's a violin move. There's such a deep meaning behind it. The violin move means you can't touch him, because he is Mr. Untouchable. It is the world's smallest violin for all of the sad songs, for all of the haters out there, because he is what Mr. Untouchable. They do repeat it a couple of times just to make sure it sinks in. But the Marcus isn't just on ballinsiders.com. It's not just that the whole school has him on their Snapchat stories. No, the Marcus is also the face of the school. He is quite literally on the school's website. So, if they were to ever even have considered him a suspect, they would have a lot to lose. If the Marcus Tillman is behind any of the poop-related crimes, the school would literally be in shit. 
Unlike the school though, these producers do take this seriously because they have to consider this from every angle. Like, is Chloe right? Does she have something against the guy because he is popular? Maybe she isn't as much? Like, how good her eyesight is really to have seen this card? And luckily for them, there was another person with the Marcus next to that vending machine. But that was his basketball mate called Gonzo. So they sit down with Gonzo and Gonzo says, yeah, there was a card in the Marcus's wallet, but it's not a third burglar card. It is the yummy swirl yogurt card. <laughs> this story is so golden. And we see the loyalty card of this yogurt shop. Gonzo says that clearly they don't realize that the swirl that they have on their card looks like poop. But we see, it is quite similar. The color is a bit different. The yogurt one seems to have the sprinkles on the poop a bit, because it definitely looks like freaking shit. But they don't realize it. So Gonzo sticks behind his friend. And then the producers are in front of Chloe. They're at Chloe's house, because they technically live there at this point. And they kind of give her those two cards for comparison. They're like, Come on, Chloe, you must have made the mistake. But she says no. The distinction is really in the eyes, the third burglar card eyes. She will never, ever forget those googly eyes. Whatever you think about that card, set it aside. Because if we are thinking about means, if we are thinking about the opportunity, then Marcus Stillman would be the perfect suspect for the third burglar, because the man had the access to everything. Remember? Mr. Untouchable. The brownout, where did it happen? In the canteen. The Marcus was best friends with all of the cooks, with everybody working in the kitchen. He even recorded a happy birthday message to one of the son's cooks, as if, I don't know, it's a cameo, as if, like, he's Steph Curry. Name another basketball player. You can't. Steph Curry, kind of hot, old family, really hot, and is. He would have had the access at any time. He wouldn't have even had to wait for the fire drill, because all of these cooks would be giving him food, like he would just pop in there and eat for free. The English classroom now, that doesn't sound like somewhere where the Marcus would be spending a lot of time. Actually, false, because we see the brilliant English teacher again say that she lets him have the key. Literally, he has the key to a classroom. Because in, like, the empty periods, the Marcus goes there to chill. They know how much pressure this basketball thing puts on him. So, everybody knows when Marcus is in the English classroom because he listens to Migos. When it comes to the English teacher, this brings us the best moment of this season. Because it's not only about Migos, it's not only about her letting him play the music in the classroom, no. She was kind of obsessed with the Marcus Stillman. Yeah, that would be an appropriate term. She compared it to the Sandra Bullock movie, The Blind Side, with her being in the role of Sandra Bullock and her students, in particular the Marcus Stillman, being in the role of the rugby player. She doesn't remember his name, so she's not really into that movie. And also, she's white and he's clearly black, but she sees herself as a savior, so she always tries to offer a helpful hand to her students. And on this occasion, 
She went too far. She went a bit too far. She asked the whole class to write a poem, and the Marcus stood up and read his. This is part of that poem. Through the hoop, through the hole, the net is my truth, the ball is my soul. Now, you hear that and you're like, okay, cool, cool, quite average, if, if we are honest, but sure, that's nice and poetic and I guess comes from his heart or whatever. Well, the English teacher heard that and then she published it in front of the classroom as an example of like how other people should write poems, but then she went to it's too far. She published it into one of those school papers that are distributed per region, so students of other schools have read this poem. And of course then, for a couple of basketball matches, all of these people, all of these students would come to DeMarcus's matches and mock him. They would even have like slogans, posters, they'd be screaming, the hoop is my soul, whatever the hell the poem said. It's very reminiscing of Weasley is our king, if anybody here is a Potterhead. And now because she fucked up, because she went too far, to make it up to the Marcus, she lets him use the classroom to listen to Migos. And of course, the words will not suffice. The third crime, the shit launcher, the gym. The athlete room was actually where the shirt launchers are kept. And this is the room that Marcus would have the access to. It is apparently locked, but Marcus doesn't have a locked territory on these school grounds. So, not just that, but Marcus was also late to the pep rally. You can kind of see him and his buddy Lou running out. It's all on camera. And then, you know, making those intro shouts that also triggered the shirt launchers. He had access to all three places without an issue. But what about the motive? So far, this police investigation focused that there is something really sly. There is a sinister motive, as in, like, somebody has been bullied and they're going to be an injustice collector from all, you know, from criminal minds. They're going to turn on people to make them suffer. But what if that isn't the motive at all? What if Marcus is looking at this just as a prank? Would it be the first time that something like this happened? And that something like this was organized by a basketball team? No, because again, we wouldn't be here if not everything was a red herring, in a way. So there is this guy who was on a basketball team called Perry Coleman. He was one of the older people, so he left the school at this point, but the Marcus really looked up to him. It was his hero, he wanted to be everything like Perry, and he kind of was a copycat in certain ways. During Perry's reign, while he was still at school, a mascot costume went missing. So, from what I gathered, again, I did not understand a couple of things here because I'm not American, but I still loved it. There's a mascot that again is used on like basketball matches, but this mascot is like a whole bodysuit. It's one of those whole metal suits that completely covers your face and masks your identity. And this mascot was stolen. And once it was stolen, an Instagram account emerged. An Instagram account under a handle Sir Fucks a lot. F-U-X, of course, of course, come, logic, you know this by now. And this account was particularly used to target a specific person. 
page the cheerleader so all the pictures they were posting was with like a speech bubble or like a fourth bubble with page in it and a lot of them were inappropriate posing with like a pink dildo and saying that they're imagining doing things to page just basically kind of a prank but also very much so bullying and also taking school property with this prank, with Sir Fox-a-Lot, everybody suspected that it was Perry Coleman. Everybody kind of knew, because again, there is that aspect of Mr. Untouchable, famous basketball player, so nobody really could say anything. Paige did go and complain to the board, to the school, but they just dismissed her. They just never took her seriously. And she suspects also that it is because of his fame, because of who he was, and because of how money they would be losing if they were ever to look into it seriously. So all of the pieces are finally falling together. We see that Demarcus idolized Perry from all of the posts that he would post with him, but also because from his own account he commented quite a few times on Sir Fox a lot. He had the means, he had the plentiful of opportunities, he didn't have the motive as such, but if you see it as a prank, if you see that he aspired to be the next Perry Coleman, you can kind of also see the motive there. Now, did he have the alibi? Of course, as soon as these producers go to his coach, he says he was there during all three events. And you can kind of see Pete sitting in front of him like, uh-huh, sure, sure you were. So Brownout, you were there with him eating lunch with a teenager. Okay, she ate lunch. Oh, you were there. Okay, of course. So the coach just does not hesitate to give this kid an alibi. From the coach, we learned that the slogan of the school is greatness on the field, excellence in the classroom. And then we have about like 15 students say, this is bullshit and everybody knows it. They have it so easy, all of the basketball players. We learned that Demarcus changed schools. As I told you, he was in the outskirts and then suddenly because of his basketball talent, he moved to this one. And as soon as he changed schools, his grades also jumped. He doesn't have to do maths, apparently, or doesn't have to <laughs> go to maths, but instead he chose to do zoology. And then we see an actual multiple-choice quiz on spot this animal, like what is this animal in the picture, and then you circle, is it a zebra, is it an elephant? And the Marcus says in the interview with the producers, math is useless, but did you know dolphins weren't fish? Yeah, dolphins are mammals. Now, that is some kind of information that you can use in real life. We see multiple Snapchats of Demarcus answering phone in class. If there are any issues, like a mention of detention, he runs to the coach. He runs to Coach Devlin, who gets him out of anything. And Chloe says they would rather fire the principal of the school than Coach Devlin, because he is the person that brings in all the money. We now saw what Perry, we now saw what Demarcus can get away with. But when somebody like Grayson does it, the consequences are different. Well, Grayson and really Kevin. So who is Grayson? Well, we learn about this kid who was kind of a scapegoat before Kevin became one, who went onto all of the open Twitter accounts in one of those IT computer science classes 
And he just tweeted at other people saying how they gave this person whose account he was hacking Clamid's STDs. Yeah, that type of thing. So as soon as that was uncovered, because again, it gained traction, it was shared. Well, the tech guy, the IT subject teacher, looked into it and he investigated it. And then they had to expel him. You would think, okay, a bit too dramatic for something like this, for like just tweeting from an account that was already open and left on a computer, but it was seen as cyberbullying. After we learn about this scapegoat, Grayson, we are joined with the producers and we walk into a mall. And there is a broke to fixed, one of those like eye smash places where you bring your phone and they have it fixed in X amount of time. And this is where Grayson works. Once he was expelled, he couldn't even enroll in any other school. And he tells us this is exactly what Perry did to Paige, to the cheerleader with all of the mockery. It was cyberbullying and it lasted for months. And I did it once. I put up a couple of tweets about Clamids and I get expelled. So now the producers are thinking, would the administration go this far to cover up a crime? From Grayson and that mole, we go back to the interview with DeMarcus Stillman. And this kid has no clue. Like, he legitimately thinks they're making a documentary about him. He has no idea what is going on. So they ask him, okay, so you see, Kevin, we kind of suspect that he might not be a third burglar. And Demarcus is actually surprised. He's like, oh my god, wow, you guys must have another suspect. They're like, uh-huh, uh-huh, why aren't you clocking? So they mention Perry and how he is a prankster and Demarcus is looking up to him. And then they ask him, Demarcus, are you a fan of yummy swirl yogurt? And Demarcus is there like, wow, you spoke to me about Kevin and then you mentioned Perry and now you ask me for like yogurt? Like, of course, I like yogurt. And then he gets up, he's like, probably a thought starts forming in his head that they might be actually looking into him. He's like, who doesn't like yogurt? That's it for me today, guys. You know, no hard feelings. And him and his sidekick, Clue, just leave the gym. And then, as they go home to Chloe's, we get a zoom on Pete's phone as he gets a DM from the third burglar. If you are trying to find me, you're doing a shitty job. The next time we meet our boys, Pete and Sam, they decide this is it. Let us respond to this message with something provocative. It's something that he will feel like he needs to be inclined to respond. Because they have, of course, tried to DM his social media account, his or hers, the third burglar's social media account, multiple times before, and they have never responded until they spoke with Demarcus. So the two of them are brainstorming at this bench in the park, of course, because you don't want to get tracked. You want this to be in the middle of nowhere. And they're saying, like, we need to provoke him. So to say, like, bitch, say what you have to say. If you want to say something, just say it. So that is kind of what they send in the end. You must have something you want to say, so say it. They eliminate bitch out of it. I wouldn't personally, because aggression is how you choose to wake up one day. And then <laughs> you get screenshots of that in the internet. And then people are like, why are you calling me a bitch? 
I worked with a person once who asked me why do I say bitch in so many different situations? Like, she didn't understand the connotation. Like, how can bitch be said in a positive and also a negative way? Needless to say, that person is not my friend and he's never been my friend. Because what the fuck? Common sense. Okay. <laughs> so once they respond to Third Burglar's account, they're sitting and waiting and then they receive coordinates. And these coordinates are about like 100 meters from Kevin's house in this alleyway. And there's a Third Burglar's card in a pile of shit. So... That's nothing else is there to it. Peter just takes chopsticks out of this garbage to take this card out and assess if anything else is hidden in shit, but it isn't. So Sam is like, yeah, the third burger just wanted you to use the chopsticks and go through shit. This person is clearly just messing with you. Just like with the brownout, the goal here just seemed to be to embarrass Pete, to get him to dig through shit, to maybe show him that he is full of shit and that he should stop investigating. But he doesn't. We see them going back to that string board and looking at their suspects. And again, the strongest evidence against Kevin, both of them would say, were that the last two posts are announcing the crime that hasn't happened. And Kevin was already dormant. He was already in his house. He couldn't have reached school. He could only have access to one shop that is around his corner and pretty much his house. This is when these two geniuses turn to one of my favorite things, and that is linguistics. Like, do the posts that the third burglar makes sound more like Kevin or more like Demarcus? Or do they sound like somebody else completely? So the language in these posts doesn't sound like Demarcus. It's very Shakespearean. It's very, you know, shukev. There's a lot of, like, I would throw shit upon thee, you shitheads. And to a certain degree, it is very Shakespearean, very using the language that somebody who read a couple of books would have used. But also, shitheads, there's a lot of, like, aggressive language in these posts that they just don't think Marcus would have used. Because he genuinely liked everybody in school and he was liked by everybody. There wasn't that bullying aspect to it. But then we get the expert opinion of the professor of forensic linguistics saying that if you are trying to disguise your online presence, you would change the linguistics features on purpose. So that is something that they call in the biz code switching or style shifting. And we have seen this before because Sir Fox a lot used to say, sucketh my own dick. So he used to incorrectly use the Shakespearean language. <laughs> I get so much hate. <laughs> the level of hate for Shakespeare that has come through this podcast and this channel is truly amusing. <laughs> only to me. And only me. No, 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 Shakespeare was definitely the founder of English language. <laughs> Meaning that either this person is doing this naturally or they're putting on an act. And whether or not could this be the exact same person? Now, Sam and Pete turn to the text messages between the Marcus and his mates, and they find out that there is quite a difference between the messages that he exchanges with people from back home and the ones that he exchanges with people from school. Like, the ones that he exchanges with people from school are a lot whiter, sound a lot whiter, a lot more posh. 
But that's not all. He apparently misuses a particular emoji. So there's a couple of grinning emojis, you know, like the white teeth one. Well, instead of that one, he uses the one where it just looks like somebody's clenching their teeth, and so does the third burglar. Is the emoji where you know at your teeth, at your jaw, because of your anxiety, going to close this space? It's not. It's really not. <laughs> but what might? What might? just lead to the break in the case is a glitch. And I googled this because this is a legitimate, this is not fake news, this is a legitimate glitch that happened in November of 2017, mostly to iPhone users. So you could really say if you agree with Kevin, who had a superior phone, which is Samsung, that you had not experienced this glitch. I forgot about this, that's why I had to Google it. I was like, wait, did this really happen? What was the glitch, Maya? Come to the fucking point. In November of 2017, iPhone users experienced a glitch when updating to iOS 11.1, where an uppercase I, so if you were to type a word I, you would be corrected to A, capital A, and then a question mark that came in this weird box. Why do I not remember this? And why does it look like aliens have possessed our phones? And of course, you couldn't have changed it. It was a glitch that then was rectified with like the next software release. So for at least a couple of weeks, people were just walking around typing I in this way. And now you would think if you were a criminal committing crimes in November of 2017, and you had an iPhone that you wouldn't be typing I, but of course these are egomaniacs, and they don't think like us. So Demarcus posted on those days, and he didn't have the glitch, but a third burglar did. So this didn't come from Demarcus's phone. Kevin has a superior phone, which is Android, so of course it shouldn't have been Kevin. They didn't do even the basic due diligence of the investigation in this case, the police, that is. Pete and Sam will end up solving it. And in order to solve it, they turn back to Chloe before they really dig into this iPhone glitch and look into other people's phones. Because they look at Chloe and they're thinking, is this a trickery? <laughs> Why is your white ass saying a trickery? And they're looking at Chloe, they don't think that she invited them there to investigate this crime, that she's the third burglar, but they have to think, why did she wait for two weeks before she reported on Demarcus? Like, is there something else there? Why didn't she try to prevent two other crimes? If she knew it wasn't Kevin after the brownout, why not stop and prevent further crimes? We have a bit of an insight on Chloe's background, rather the Chloe versus Kevin connection. Kevin heard her in the school. This is what I'm talking to you about. It's like super serious and then he goes to these gems where Kevin heard Chloe sing when she thought nobody was listening. She was singing Party in the USA by the one and only Miley motherfucking Cyrus. And Kevin interrupted her and he said that the choice of a song is shite, but she performed it amazingly. And from that point on, she joined the Horsehead Band. We learned that Kevin truly changed her life from that party in the USA moment, because suddenly she was from a traditional family. You know how the Cranstons are. Everybody's just a doctor, engineer, NASA astronaut, 
okay? So all of them go follow these traditional pathways, but now she is headed to a music school. She has been participating in a band. As much as Kevin changed her life in a way, at least according to her, the two of them drifted apart. She started making friends with a cooler group of kids, and also that meant that her and Kevin weren't so close anymore. They would still hang out when they performed with the Horsehead band, but there wasn't really much else to it. In fact, if Chloe was to be invited to parties, they would specifically indicate for her to come, but not to bring Kevin along. But despite of this, she says that she didn't want to snitch until she had to, until she actually had to save her friend or somebody who used to be her friend, and she would have done the same if it was the Marcus. One bad end after the other. Now, our producers go to something that they haven't known about until this point. Because, of course, iOS glitch that has potential and will eventually lead somewhere. But they have to find something to cross that with. They have to have some names to see if those names, if those potential suspects then also would have the motive. And what they find out about is this tip box. Before, of course, they accused Kevin, there was kind of like a tip jar, just like a Kleenex box, really, where people could put in their anonymous tips of who they think did it. And a couple of names kept repeating themselves, so three in particular. First person was named Drew, and Drew is a theater kid. When I saw him, I was like, okay, clearly gay. Maybe, maybe not. But he was the friends with all of the girls, all of the theater girls. He was no threat to anybody. That is until certain pictures came out of Drew. It was pictures of Drew in diapers and just drinking out of baby bottles. He said, when questioned about this, that he was just pushing himself as an actor. <laughs> to which, in the script I put, I really hope that the actor here actually got paid well. That he got paid, like, above and beyond. Just because, if you were to Google his name, probably these are the pictures that first come up. And then if somebody's a lazy piece of shit who doesn't want to Google further into it, this is who you think he is. Like, you don't think he's an actor. You're like, okay, this is some weird king. These pictures were, of course, circulating the school. Everybody knew of pictures of Drew in diapers, and not everybody probably thought it is him pushing himself as an actor. So he might have had a motive, again, because of bullying, because of the embarrassment that he has felt. But Drew had an alibi. A librarian actually vouched for him. She said that he was in the library reading during the fire drill because nobody was speaking to him at a point. Like, he kind of lost all of the friends because of all of these pictures, so he would spend his lunches inside of the library. For that same reason, she was his alibi for the pep rally. So we come to the second person. This person... <laughs> I just love the intro to Jenna, because they say there are people who are filthy rich at this school, and then there are people who have a school library named after them, like that level of rich. And that was Jenna Hawthorne. You see, her Instagram profiles, her social media profiles are all 
perfection. Just her traveling with her girlfriend. All of the pictures seem to be professionally taken. People were all semi-buying into this perfect lifestyle that Jenna was portraying until a picture showed up of her posing with Kendall Jenner, saying something along the lines of the two of them being best friends. But then somebody found the original picture. And it is from one of those meet and greet things where she waited in a row for like 50 minutes or whatever, and then she took that picture. Because you can see other people waiting to take a picture with Kendall. But yet again, now you have opinions of other people about this scandalous post, and the Marcus chips in, saying that how dare she disrespect Kendall like that. Yeah. You know, what about all the other people? How do they feel? The people that have real relationship with Kendall, like Kim, Tyga, the mom, the transgender mom. But that isn't why you should be treating Jenna with utmost suspicion. It is because her parents produce multitool, the main component in those laxatives. And they produce it in bulk. It's like wholesale or whatever that's called. So she every week interns at that company, at a parent's company that produces the thing that makes you shit, okay? And she, unfortunately for the producers, also has an alibi. Every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday, she needs to check out with one of the school staff members, and then she goes and interns at her parent's company, basically meaning probably a chilling in a parking lot, getting high, which is what <laughs> is going to end up to be the truth. So, she wasn't even in the school during the attacks. Now, we have the last kid, whose name is Paul, and who is one of my top three characters <laughs> in this fucking series, because Paul, Paul is a religious child, and he brings it to the next level. Paul is this religious kid. You can see his YouTube videos, his just rants of everything that happens in school. You can see Snapchat videos of him arguing with an English teacher about how, I don't know, Romeo and Juliet is smart and she's making them read technically like Fifty Shades of Grey. Which, like, Paul, how do you know what Fifty Shades of Grey is? I invented that part, okay? All of the students are saying even Jesus would tell Paul to take it down a notch. The guy is at a psychopath level because he puts full stops after emojis. And I agree. Who the fuck puts full stops after emojis? No. But this is important here because who else puts full stops after emojis? The third burglar. As if this wasn't enough, on the third burglar's account, one post consisted, was captioned with a Bible verse. And this is next level, of course. This is some next level Catholic shit. It's something about bowels falling out, if you are religious and watching this, which I somehow, somehow really doubt. <laughs> something tells me that you are not, like, you know, 100% on that Jesus level in watching this. But Paul would also have the alibi, and his alibi would be yet another member of the school staff, that weird English teacher. And as Sam and Peter interviewing the English teacher, she says that she is his alibi because during the shit launcher attack, she vividly remembers that he stayed behind to argue about Pope. And as they're interviewing her in her room, we presume, 
somebody calls her, somebody calls her out and she has to leave. And she leaves towards the teacher's room. But Sam, Sam thinks on his feet, one of the producers, right? And he's like, I'm gonna follow her into the room with the camera. So he just kind of follows her into the teacher's lounge saying like, I'm sorry, I'm lo I was just looking for a toilet. But we kind of see a camera move as much as possible. And later, once the two of them review the footage, they zoom in on an advent calendar because they have seen this advent calendar before. And they have seen it as the second announcement, the pre-warning of the third burglar's crime. Now, this is a teacher's lounge. This is highly suspicious. But also now that they have this footage, they go back to their board and they realize in terms of social media, the third burglar would post one warning post in every single case, except what they thought was here, which is two warning posts, and then one delivery device. So sort of like what was used to deliver the poop. This is an advent calendar. What if somebody ate shit through the advent calendar chocolate? What if the fourth crime actually happened? Because that would change everything. They need to go to Kevin to suggest this to him because that would exonerate him. That would mean that he was on house arrest as this had happened. But it would also change everything about how they looked into this because... Students aren't allowed in the teacher's lounge. So whoever got into the teacher's lounge, we suppose was a student, how did they get there? How do they even have the access? With this new supposition, just based on when the third burglar would post the delivery device ones, they suppose that the crime, the fourth crime that they only learned about, happened on the 4th of December because the delivery post was posted the day after. And what also happened just on the 5th was that the hot janitor was fired. And they know this because literally Pony starts playing. We see multiple shots, multiple videos of hot janitor just cleaning everything and everyone. He was the most pictured person in that school. He was the one people literally took like autographs from. That is how hot this janitor was. Even I, who am not into whiteies, have to admit he had a tight piece of ass. And you know what they say about men with a tight piece of ass? What? What do they say, Maya? Their frontal compensates for the tightness. What? <laughs> what does that even mean? Their thumbs are large, and you know what they say about guys with the large thumbs. I swear it's not even a thumb. I swear it's like the index finger. Is it a thumb? Look at these retarded thumbs. There's a person who's born with six fingers and six toes. Shut it! Shut it! Abort mission. He was hot. And he was the most recorded person in the school. And now suddenly he's gone. After he cleared shit from free crimes, which, God, you really put it into that perspective, disgusting, especially the brownout. But he cleaned all of that. He didn't leave on his own. So they suppose he has been fired. So this crime had to be that bad. It had to be that bad to cause him to get fired the next day. So the producers get on tracking this hot janitor, finding out where he lives. And they find out that it's actually really hard. First of all, because he's seen as an object, he's seen as a piece of meat. Nobody actually knows his name. 
let alone his address. I mean, the English teacher says it's not appropriate that she calls somebody a 10, but he is definitely a 9. The nun says surely she wasn't going to call him the hot janitor, but nobody has this guy's phone number. Nobody knows where the hell he lives. Well, that is, until they interview one child, whose brother gets mushrooms from hot janitor. So they're in the middle of nowhere. This guy lives in a trailer, and I mean, when you think about it, it's really cool. Or also he might be a serial killer. Anyway, so the hot janitor they speak with, and he tells them he grows his own food, he offers them to eat, like, I don't know, something from the freaking ground. He's one of those people, one of the grounders. But he also tells them that he wasn't fired. He was actually transferred. Now that is even more suspicious, isn't it? And he was transferred by the Dean of Students, Mrs. Wexler, the one I said was an actual piece of shit. So what happened on December the 4th was what he described as a huge mess. The guy that cleaned up to the brownout described this as a huge mess, like, made chill. Apparently two people, two teachers, threw up in the teacher's lounge. One threw up into the plant, and then the other one did a sympathy vomit, which I have not heard until this very case. So sympathy vomit is when you see somebody vomiting, you're too disgusted, you have that gag reflex, and then you actually vomit. Kind of like, you know, when somebody yawns, and then you yawn, or you are considered a psychopath, something along those lines. So one person took a chocolate, piece of chocolate out of the advent calendar, ate it, or ate a bit of it, threw up into the plant, and then the other one was the sympathy vomit. He only heard that this might have been cat shit, but he doesn't know which teachers threw up. But these two boys put their detective skills to the test, and they find out that there were five teachers who were free during that period. So, which one ate shit? The question of the day. Well, they start questioning them, and of course, None of them admit to eating shit, but you're thinking, okay, maybe it's because they're embarrassed, like, you know, it's not like every day that you get to eat shit and then tell somebody about it, but then you kind of notice that all of them are saying the same thing, as if they were prepped by somebody, and that somebody was probably Mrs. Wexler. One of the teachers they focus on in particular, and this guy is called Mr. Fernandez. So, the producers find out from these students that they thought on that day all of the classes would be cancelled because of all of the threats, because the shit launcher literally just happened. But then they walk into Mr. Fernandez's class and they were supposed to have a test, but they find out they're having a sub, teacher, substitute teacher for that day, because Fernandez left halfway through the day. So the boys walk in and they're like, Mr. Fernandez, did you eat shit? And he's like, no, I didn't eat shit. He repeats the same freaking message that Mr. Wexler engraved into their brains. But this is when we learn about something that is called gifts of the lamb. This is one of those things that rich school do that, again, I do not completely understand, but it is one of those charitable events where they dispatch all of these rich kids to, like, 
a poor people country and they do some charity work with children but they also stay at the richest hotel like a resort level and of course most of the kids want to be in on it but also there is an incentive for the teachers to join this. So they do like this draw, it's very political. They do this whole draw every year of like which teachers are going to go and chaperone the kids. For this year's Gifts of the Lamb, there was already a list with the teachers that were supposed to go, but then suddenly 4th of December comes around, this 4th attack comes around, and then the day after the list is revised and Fernandez is on it, the guy that they are heavily suspecting ate shit. And they thought maybe Mrs. Wexler rigged this year's chaperone system in order to keep his mouth shut. Or maybe, according to Demarcus, he was just obsessed with washing his anus in a bidet yet again, because Demarcus loved how bidets work. He was obsessed, okay? He finally understood the purpose. He said it streams a bit of water up your ass, and that it is a bit gay, but finally, when you realize where your G-spot is, everything makes sense, doesn't it? Okay, I need to reconsider my life choices right now. Pegging. Allow your girlfriends and wives to peg you. Totally not a personal story and a personal message to my own husband. Moving on! Now, it seems like they're drawing to a close. It seems like they're closer to the truth than ever. So, Kevin feels like freedom is nearby. Like, he's soon gonna get rid of that ankle bracelet. Life is gonna be the same. He might even be able to return to the school. The boys are really thinking they're in on something with this fourth crime. But Mrs. Wexler isn't talking. So, Chloe suggests that they bug her and she's gonna go into her office they need to speak anyways about her, like, uni plans. So they put our little microphone on her and Chloe goes in and she just is blatant. She just, like, immediately says she knows the fourth crime has happened. She knows teachers age shit. And Mrs. Wexler basically tells her to think about her future, that Kevin probably did it with the help of a friend and that it isn't in her best interest to start up this conversation. So Chloe's like, is this a threat? Because this sounds like a threat. To which Mrs. Wexler responds that there are felony charges attached to this crime, so that she should rethink having this conversation. Shady bitch. Shady, shady bitch. If it wasn't for the mental levels of the third burglar, I know this is fictional, I know this is fictional, but if it wasn't for the mental state of this deranged person, she would have gotten away with it, like Kevin would have been falsely accused forever. Okay, jumping the gun. After this conversation, the mood is quite gloomy. Kevin feels like he's bringing his friends down with him. Chloe is saying that she's not gonna join his pity party because she has lost friends as well, because she is on his side. And then Kevin, in those downtime moments, as it usually happens, has a light bulb moment. His locker in the school is actually right across the teacher's lounge. Like, bitch, why didn't you think about this in the first episode? Anyways, 
So he is like, you know what, you can use my locker, here's the key to it or whatever, and put the camera inside of it so that it can overlook the teacher's lounge and we can see if there's anything odd, if there's maybe a student coming out of it. And what do you know? They see a student coming out of the teacher's lounge that cannot be accessed by students. And that student is Lou, the Marcus's best friend and really a shadow sidekick or a shadow definition of a shadow of a man. <laughs> With this footage, they go to Coach Devlin. They're like, hey, so funny this. Can you explain it? Coach Devlin, of course, says yes. You see how everything around the Marcus is about him, right? About the business. Well, Lou is very protective of his friend and he's very focused on the Marcus achieving everything. So every day the coach gives him the key to go into the teacher's lounge because it has microwave and this is where he warms up his lunch. Everything is structured about the Marcus's life, but honestly. <laughs> If somebody was to be like, yeah, you little bitch ass, go and every day warm up your friend's lunch because they're more successful than you, I don't know. I don't know if my pettiness would allow it. Lou clearly doesn't have that problem, though. As if this wasn't enough, Lou's phone was an iPhone. It had a glitch. The motive? Well, Lou was also friends with Perry. He looks up to him and even more Marcus. Maybe they saw it all as a prank. What if it is all raising the stakes of Sir Fox a lot? Now, of course, they can't just take over that account. That would be lame. They didn't have the same motivation with Paige, the cheerleader. But what if they wanted to do it on their own? So finally, the boys sit down and they're like, we need to speak with Perry, Perry Coleman, to see what kind of effect this man actually had over these boys. From Perry, we find out that the boys were airtight with him. But that all changed because you see the optics here they have all wrong. Perry was never the one running the shots. Lou was. Lou controls Marcus and all of his decisions because from his point of view, he doesn't want him to go to the same college that Perry goes to. Like, it just doesn't seem to be a great influence on his basketball career to live in the shadows of somebody else. And at all costs, as soon as Perry moved from that high school to the college, Lou tried at all costs to separate the two of them from hanging out. Lou even flipped and called the police to the party that Perry was supposed to show up and hang out with the Marcus and that lot. And now the boys are like, which party? The skip day party? The one that Tanner accused Kevin of calling the police on them. That was all Lou. And they had a confirmation of that, because there is a group chat where Lou says, don't bother coming over because the police is already here. But this is six minutes before the police was actually there. And beyond that conversation, the boys get one picture that when they zoom in on it, there's Chloe making out with Tanner, Kevin's best friend, and then there's Lou on the phone, possibly inclined to believe, calling the police. We find out more about Lou who is kind of that example of like a really sad person who gets in on some power and then they're just the sad person in power, but that also makes them dangerous. 
wow, okay, <laughs> personal experience doesn't matter. Everybody around the Marcus needs to please Lou because they want to be friends with the main guy and then there's this shadow that is always there. But also, if we are looking at this from the business perspective side, Lou would never let the Marcus run a prank like this. He's too invested in this business. He wouldn't do it himself in order to jeopardize his friend's business. Like, the Marcus is this guy's meal ticket, as everybody says. We come to the moment of truth, or is it? Because Lou and the Marcus are on the basketball court, because that is where they were during this whole documentary. And the producers, Sam and Pete, are showing them a picture of the two of them on skip day. So they're showing in the picture of Lou on the phone and then the picture of the group chat. From the facial expressions, you can see that Lou is clearly upset. Like, the mood has clearly shifted. He's moving away and clearly doesn't want to answer any further questions. And you see that the Marcus just isn't honed in on this. Like... It doesn't seem like he's aware that Lou was the one to have called the police. And as Lou is moving away, the producers are shouting at him. If you let Kevin take a fall for the call, what else are you letting him take the fall for? There was a fourth crime, Lou. And Lou is asking, who were you talking to? Like, how do you know all of this? How do you know I was the one to call the police? So the two of them just walk away. It seems like the Marcus is still under this guy's spell. But Lou was clearly about to say something. We go back to Tanner. They all tell Tanner, like, you should feel really bad about yourself because uh, you snitched on your friend and there's just, like, no proof. And this is the proof that there is no proof. Tanner finally apologizes to Kevin and all of that bullshit. He apologizes to him in front of the child, who looks, like, super weirded out, like, ooh, I'm third-wheeling on this conversation. I'm gonna get the fuck out of here soon. And then we get on-screen text stating that six hours after the producers showed Lou and the Marcus footage, Gonzo got in touch. And we see the zoom in on Gonzo, as in, like, they're gonna conduct an interview with him, and his face is clearly bruised. Like, they beat the shit out of this guy. Meaning that Lou and the Marcus thought that he was talking to him and not Perry. And this is when Gonzo says Chloe was telling the truth. During the pep rally, the two boys ran in the last second. He suspected that the Marcus was the third burglar, and then he kind of had it confirmed during the pep rally because the Marcus and Lou ran in last. And the team started believing Gonzo when he suggested that maybe the Marcus is responsible for this. But then the captain sent them all an email asking them to lie. We see the email on the screen that says, Just to refresh everyone's memory, do you have dementia? Maybe I can refresh your memory. After chatting with Gonzo, Pete is like, well, we are clearly in on something. Like, let us DM the third burglar again, see if we can provoke him. And Pete sends a message to the third burglar, saying, are you happy the entire basketball team let Kevin take the fall? To which third burglar responds, you're onto something, Peter. Maybe Kevin was in on it the whole time. Link to the truth. And the link is to, like, a gif of a pig taking the shit, so... 
Pete says this does mean that they're getting somewhere though, because Third Burger is clearly responding more, and also they have more and more evidence that actually makes sense. As I always say, it is the story that flows better. But now things are about to turn around, whole 180, because we see the CCTV footage from the only supermarket around the corner that Kevin can go to with his ankle bracelet, and we see that he is clearly being pushed around and just intimidated by Demarcus and Lou. And then we see the texts on Pete's phone from Kevin, saying how he hasn't been honest, how it's him, how he is the third burglar. At this point, the producers don't know of that CCTV footage, of that intimidation, so they go to Kevin, knock on his door, they're trying to figure out why did he suddenly send that message and then blocked all of them. And then they ask Chloe to help them, so they head to the only other place that Kevin would have access to, that 24-7 shop. And they're there to wait for Kevin, because they think, like, eventually he's gonna have to come out of his house and go to the shop. But then the owner of the shop, or one of the merchants, comes out and tells them basically to fuck off. And they're like, hey, we are looking for our buddy Kevin, you must know him, because he's here literally every day. And this guy says to them, like, yeah, I banned him from the shop yesterday, like, I actually had to kick him out. So they go in and start sucking up to this man to give them the story, and he isn't caving in. So one person is like, I'm gonna buy seven caps and, like, this snow globe if you tell me, if you give us the CCTV footage. And this is when we see the CCTV footage of the Marcus and Lou threatening Kevin, and then Kevin walking into that 24-7 and having a panic attack, like, absolute meltdown. He opened up the ice cream freezers, he smashed them all to the ground, he even started sobbing in the corner, so this person, of course, had to kick him out and just literally ban him for life. But now, with this information, they go to Chloe and they're like, is there any reason why the two of them would be speaking with Kevin? And she's like, no, they're not friends, my man. Chloe and Sam are here like, well, now we have this CCTV footage in our possession because somehow the store owner gave it to them, and they're saying we can go to the police. But Pete, Pete is just like, let, give me one last chance. I just want to confront them. So he goes to the outskirts and he goes to speak with Lou. Lou would tell them that, according to him, it's clear that Kevin did it. He is actually super convinced that Marcus couldn't do it, and that email from the coach is one reason more to prove that, because that email was about the Marcus's ankle. He was to see a physical therapist before the pep rally. That is why the two of them came in the last minute. So the coach just thought that nobody should really be looped in on it, because, of course, he's a pro athlete, like, if this comes out, the Marcus's career might be over. Lou shows them the receipt of the physical therapy, which I'm like, you can fake that. Also, why did you just have that on hand? Like, this is his physical therapy. <laughs> Too much of a shadow, my man. And also, he admits to punching Gonzo in the eye because, well, he was kind of a snitch and his friend doesn't deserve these rumors. And just as he is showing them that receipt of that therapy, they're just saying, like, I mean, we were late, and then on top of that, Jenna motherfucking Houghton crashed her car into ours. 
But on the dot, she submitted an invoice, like she literally paid me on the spot. So, hey, here's a proof of that as well. I mean, it's the most rich people can do, you know, if you can't drive, then at least pay up. And they're like, wait, okay, pause on that. Okay, so there's an actual proof of this. Like, there's no way somebody like Jenna Houghton would be associated with somebody like Lou. Why was Jenna there? Jenna's alibi was that she was out of school interning at the laxative company thing. So, do you have a picture for the insurance? Of course he does, because he's motherfucking Lou. He's a businessman. And on this picture, when they zoom it in, they see a limited edition t-shirts in the passenger seat. And those limited edition t-shirts are what? Third burglars t-shirts, which are limited edition by default, meaning that Jenna would not be able to have them if she was not the third burglar herself. So they corner her. They find her at the parking lot of this internship place where she isn't doing fuck all. She's high. She's off her fucking rocker. She's smoking in this closed car. And she tells them, I mean, you don't even understand half of the story. Like, I'll speak to you when I'm a bit less high. Before they were to face Jenna, Chloe is again insisting that they actually go to the police. But Pete, Pete has a death wish, okay? He's like, no, let's message and provoke third burglar one last time. And Chloe's like, he doesn't respond to you most of the time, you fucking idiot. When was the last time that he actually responded to you? And he gives her the timestamp and then realizes that he has seen that timestamp somewhere else on the CCTV footage. And on this footage, clearly, it shows that Demarcus and Lou were intimidating Kevin, meaning that none of these three men could be a third burglar, because clearly none of them was on their phone typing a message back. So finally, they meet with, well, Lou and Demarcus, because Kevin still isn't talking to them, and they explain the situation to them. Like, it took a minute. <laughs> Because they really had to spell it out to them to understand what is going on and why the fact that they were in the CCTV and the timestamp could mean that they're not the third burglars. And they're like, yeah, you see, we are finally cleared. Now we go back to Jenna. And Jenna has an interesting story to tell. Jenna Hawthorne admits that she only did one poop-related attack the pep rally, and that she did it because she was blackmailed by a woman called Brooke Wheeler. If you remember, Jenna had quite an active social media presence. She posted all of the pictures, the professional photography with her girlfriend. But then her and her girlfriend broke up, and this beautiful ginger starts messaging her. At first, she just liked some of her pictures. She seemed to have come across her profile. Then, you know, Jenna followed her back and started liking some of hers. The two of them start DMing one another. And it was nice for Jenna to feel like she's finally relating and connecting with somebody who doesn't know about her rich family, who doesn't want her for only the superficial things, for her money. So every night for hours, the two of them would be messaging between one another about their secrets, about their insecurities. And you and I are screaming catfish. And that, to a certain degree, will become 
the truth. But then we see the videos that Brooke sent to Jenna and, you know, she even has a nickname for her. She called her her pickle. And you can kind of buy that, okay, this is a real person. They never jumped on FaceTime or anything like that. But there are at least videos of her, right? That doesn't scream red flags. It does. It fucking does. Immediately jump on FaceTime. They want stop wasting times. Catfishes are everywhere. Borat. Borat. Catfishes everywhere. It seemed like Brooke Wheeler really got into Jenna's head to the point that Jenna even sent her some pictures that she wouldn't like anybody seeing. Nudes. Nudes, yes. And then... Immediately, as soon as those pictures were sent, things just got dark. It was just blackmail. Just nasty messages, one after the other, making her feel like shit. It was a straight-up blackmail. The plan was put into action. Coordinates were sent from Brooke to Jenna. She sent her to the alleyway, the same one where Pete was digging through shit by his chopsticks. And then, in this alleyway, there was a box with Jenna's name on it. There were instructions inside, even zip bags full of actual poop. <laughs> the level of pre-planning is a bit psychotic. Coach's office was to be open during the rally, so even though she isn't supposed to be there, she shouldn't be found. She was just to go and replace the shirts. The instructions were even showing step-by-step -step tutorials of how to roll the shirts into the shirt launcher. After rolling those shirts into the launcher, Jenna was to send the proof that it's made, it's done, it's ready to go. And after those, Brooke just ignored her. She blocked her on all of the socials. And then we meet Brooke, because our documentary makers are interviewing her. But she isn't Brooke. She doesn't know the name Brooke. She doesn't know over Jenna. She's Abby Samuels. And these videos that they're showing her are the private videos of her that she used to send her boyfriend. So they're kind of thinking like, okay, I mean, you were really hard to find. Like, you see, your pictures have been used by the third burglar. So we reverse searched them and only one of them popped up on Google. And she's like, who the fuck is third burglar? Like, Wouldn't you like to know? Wouldn't we all like to know? That is why we are here, bitch. But I was thinking, why is nobody asking her who her boyfriend is? Because I thought that was the angle. Because I'm a dumb bitch who forgot the plot of this whole thing. But instead, the correct question was... Was there a time in August when the social media account was created when her videos started being sent and DMs being sent from her account? Was there a time in August that her phone was out of her possession? Do you see where this is going? Because I scream. I scream because of how good it is. I scream. Okay, let me loop you in. She goes on her Facebook and realizes that she posted one of those posts like, hey, my phone is broken, so this is where you reach me. And she tells them she went down to a mall to one of those fix overnight, fix my phone overnight, places to one of those stands, and she handed it over to a guy. And then the next day, she showed up and she picked it up. And they're like, hey, is it called broke to fix? And she's like, yeah. 
And then Pete takes his phone out and shows her the picture of a guy that works on one such store and asks her, is this the guy? And she's like, yes. And we are back to him because the guy is Grayson. This is so brilliantly done because we completely forgot about this man. We're like, he was mentioned miles, ages ago, and you're like, oh, it's the Clamids guy. He was expelled. He actually had a motive. Like, motives are important. This is why I have a whole podcast on it. So, yeah, they're back to Grayson. They message him on the third burglar account, and Pete just is like, you know what? Fuck it. He needs to know that the gig is up. The jig, the jig is up, not the gig, because there's no gig, the jig. And he just messages him, hi, Grayson. Finally, Pete, after this, accepts that they need to head to the police station. But as they head there, they needed to change course. They needed to go back to the school because shit was about to go down for real. There was one last post on the third burglar's account. They were gonna go out with a bang. There was a video of the piece of shit speaking, you know, AI and how it works, that the fecal finale is coming, saying that everybody's full of shit and that they should prepare for the dump. So, as they're approaching school, everybody's running out of it. Everybody has seen it. They're like, we're not consuming shit. We're not being shat over. We're not shitting ourselves. We're out. And Mrs. Wexler is literally chasing after them, being like, you're all gonna get detention. Whoever leaves school is gonna get detention. They're running for their lives. They're not about to get embarrassed anymore. But uh, the fecal finale didn't really involve the fecal part of it. The dump was digital. It was a social dump. It was a dump of all of the information. The victims of this information dump were Jenna, who now the whole school had the access to her nudes, the ones that she sent to Brooke. Then there were three other victims. The tech ed, the guy that fired Grayson in the first place, um, that was the irony of the whole story. Well, he actually used to take his own nudes in school and then send them to people online. So he resigned after he was exposed. And then Drew was another victim, the pampers guy, the diaper guy. Because uh, beyond the diapers, which you would think were more embarrassing, there was a video that he also would be sending in diapers, apparently moving, being very flexible. To be honest, I was questioning myself, like, was I a prude? Like, was I not completely understanding what is going on here? Because they blur it out. And it's, tell me what you interpreted this as, because I interpreted it in the wildest possible ways. And then the fourth victim was the Marcus. So there were pictures of his drunk that they also sent out. Also, these were blurred out in quite a suggestive way, <laughs> may I add so. Because, of course, his abs are completely showing, but then the junk part that was burned out leads us to believe that he's quite well hung. And I was like, was this the whole point of the series? <laughs> okay, the Marcus, whatever his name is, because he is like the internet celebrity as well. I was like, mate, <laughs> mate, was the whole point to make this series to show to the public that you're well hung, because, I mean, would I put it past anybody? Would I, if I had to prove what? What? <laughs> I mean, there's the standards. How would you prove anything? 
There was this Big Mouth. Big Mouth released a new season, an episode 2, I think. The one that talks about their insecurities, I found very triggering. Because there's... <laughs> among one of the insecurities is camel toe. And it's, like, very meaty and weird. Is that what you were thinking about? Like... But why would... People wouldn't find that attractive. People don't necessarily find camel toes attractive. Or do they? What was the point of this segue? Go back to the story right now. So, four victims, four crimes. Connect the dots. There were four people that were blackmailed into those crimes. So, now they go to each and every person to find out how the fuck did this come about? Why did they allow themselves to be blackmailed by this Brooke girl? The tech guy, the tech teacher, did the calendar. Then, sheet launcher was Jenna. So, that leaves us with two people. The producers go to the hood to speak to the Marcus, and Lou and his own dad try to prevent this from happening, but the Marcus still goes out, because he likes the publicity. What can you say? He wants to explain his side of the story. And he says it's embarrassing, people just don't understand circumcised dicks. But he was the one behind the poop piñata. The way it happened was very similar. Like, he found a box in an alley, and it consisted of the card, all of the instructions. There were all of the pictures in there as well to remind him what's at stake. And then they ask him, like, why Brooke? Like, why did you continue chatting? Like, you have the access to everybody in school. Like, all of the real people, all of the real girls. And he says, well, he just wanted it to be real. She liked him, and it's hard to know what's real when no one is real with you. Which is one of the deepest lines of this whole series. Like, there were ones that I was like, wow, this actually took me a surprise. Especially because it comes from, like, the Marcus, who has, like, half a brain in this series. So, back from being deep, though, this is immediately broken, this deep moment. They're like, no, humor. Insert it in right now. He's like, did you guys see my dick pic? Like, my well-hung? You approve? Cool. Now, they go to Drew, because the only logical option is that Drew did the brownout. He was the fourth victim of being blackmailed. But he said he didn't do it. Brooke asked him, and he said no, so she leaked the pictures. And apparently, the way the hook here was the diaper fetish, or whatever you would want to call it, that is how she got him hooked. But he didn't say anything. He didn't say that, you know, he was being blackmailed or he didn't fess up to anything because she still had that video. So, technically, Pete and Sam are back to square one. They still need to resolve one piece of puzzle. And they turn to the four Chan videos that Grayson made after he was expelled. And, as you could imagine, it's just rants. It's like the religious guy did on Jesus, this guy did calling everybody all sorts of names, saying how they're all fake, how all of their social media presence is amazing, but they're all full of shit. With Grayson's court documents, we will find out that he actually reached out to as many people as he could, as Brooke Wheeler. He emailed even the religious dude. Like, which... What what do you have on him, my man? Like, he tried to blackmail as many people as possible. But the person he was communicating with the most, his longest exchange, was Kevin McLean. 
We zoom in on Kevin who says, I'm sorry, Peter, I couldn't tell anybody. I was the one behind the brownout. But the catch is, Kevin wasn't blackmailed. He actually bonded with Brooke. They bonded over she'd stay in McLean, they spoke about Nick and how that whole prank came about, about the Fruit Ninja, about the bullying. And Brooke was really stroking his ego, saying how he should show them, how he should do this in such a way where it would almost impress her. She would feel so proud of him if he was finally to do this prank and get back at everybody in this school. And she was the one to supply him with multi-tool, during the fire drill, just as he said, he found a lemonade dispenser. With the old guy, just as we knew, he knocked over the drink on purpose, because he didn't want to feel responsible for somebody actually dying. But then, once it happened, he said it was soul-shaking. Like, he immediately regretted it. It was just like a bad dream. But the Marcus figured it out, because they were both getting blackmailed. So, the pictures and the convos were released. And this was why the Marcus was threatening him in front of the store, because Brooke started blackmailing him that she's going to expose the pictures of his junk. But unlike with the Marcus and everybody else, where Brooke would block them immediately, here, the day after the brownout, Kevin was supposed to meet up with Brooke. And now we go back to the trip to Dorsey's, to that shop. Kevin wasn't buying laxatives. He was buying sexual paraphernalia, as he calls it, which is just literally condoms and lube. Because he was supposed to meet Brooke in this hotel. And then we see poor Kevin just sitting in this hotel waiting for a woman that is not gonna show up. Because she's a catfish. She's not even a woman. And uh, he just waited and waited, and then received one final message. You are full of shit. And then he was blocked. And then we get one last question before we go to find out where everybody is now. And it is done by Sam, who has the best questions in this whole series. He asks, doesn't that mean you shed your pants on purpose? Like, no, please ask all of the important questions. That is correct. Like, you literally made yourself shit your pants. And then the next day, like, you don't even know how long this diarrhea was going to last. That was where my mind was going. It was like, you're going to meet up with this girl. If she was real, how do you know you're not gonna shit your pants, like, during this sexual intercourse? Anyways, the outro pops up on screen, and we find out where they moved on from there. We find out that Grayson was tried as an adult, and he only got two years to serve in prison, which, like, what the fuck? You don't get two years for, like, cyberbullying everybody and making them all shit. Yes, apparently he only got that. The tech teacher's license was revoked. Mrs. Wexler had to resign. She's like, yeah, the best fucking you knew was in this whole series. The Marcus and Jenna got community service only. And Kevin's sentence remained at nine months of house arrest because he still did quite a lot of damage. We move forward all the way to June 2018, where the Marcus is the prime star of this outro. He's saying, you know, life is quite like basketball. In real life, he felt like he was on the bench, 
But then he got off the bench. He got his own driver's license. He isn't driven around by the shadow of a man that Lou was, and he is making his own decisions. And you see the zoom in on Lou on one of the Marcus's matches, just being gutted about this, being like, "How the fuck did this go so wrong? Like I lost my meal ticket for fuck's sake because of this documentary." We go to Kevin, who plans to go to a public school for a change. He's not going to return, even though he could. And Tanner and Chloe are back into his life. He hopes the producers keep in touch. And you kind of get that feeling of like, oh, he's still a sad little creature, but at least maybe he learned the lesson in this, and he's gonna start fucking real girls. I don't know, what was the moral of the story? And then we get the outro from the producers. We are the first generation that gets to live twice. One of our lives is experienced and the other one is curated. And I found that to be like one of the deepest lines on a TV show. I was like, wow, I don't mean to get emotional, but like, how did we get here? <laughs> From all of the comedy and jokes, I was like, why are you ending on a deep note? And also it probably means when the show ends in kind of like a closure way, that there's not gonna be a next season, and that's what I fucking hated. Make more seasons, 20 of them. Cool. Behind the closed doors, we are all full of shit. But if we think about, was there ever truth to Grayson's messages? That people were fake, that this is what made them who they were? It is imagination that makes us human, it isn't plastic. And then we close it off with the Horsehead Collective, or whatever it was called, their performance, stating that we are not the worst generation, just the most exposed. We are living in a constant state of feedback, and masks provide a thin layer of protection. The important part is having people who know you without a mask. The end. Okay. My conclusions, if I even have to utter a word, because I think I'm pretty expressive about how I feel about this show, is it was brilliant. Because what so many actual true crime documentaries don't do, and this is why I don't watch the actual true crime documentaries, rather only the mockumentary versions of them, is that they don't know how to dramatize it in such a way where I would watch it. Like, they don't know how to make you believe, like, oh, it's actually, we had all of these suspects, and then it was actually none of them. And this mockumentary did that perfectly. Like, I forgot about Grace. I forgot about all of these people. I was like, oh, wait, so all of them are, like, kind of involved. Like, we shouldn't have been buying into all of these alibis. And I call myself an armchair detective. I know. I know. Well, okay. I shall be seeing you either later this week or early next week or on a Monday, depending on which channel I post this. Look at this weird contraption I'm doing with my ring finger. The jewelry today is giving me really weird experiences. I don't even know what to think about. I'm not a jewelry person, as you can tell. <laughs> but uh, stay tuned for the outtakes to hear why I have shovels with earrings. <laughs> I guess that is the moral of the story. And don't be full of shit, because you know how gross this is gonna end. And watch the season one of this. I'm actually gonna watch it this weekend again, because of course I watched it before, but then forgot about everybody. And then you can find me on social media, on Twitter and stuff. I'll put it in the description box and we can chat about it, okay? Okay. 
so intense. Bye, guys. Oh, bye. Okay, do the show. Too much. TMI. Stay tuned to find out what that means. They know what TMI means. Good. <laughs> bye. Check magic, you're my magic, have much caffeine, you already have in your system today. Guys, let me let me just have a moment. I need I need a witness for the prosecution or whatever the term is. The orchid. I just need to check. I believe I believe it's not good news, guys. I believe it's not good news. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's good. It's good. Um I'm plant killer everybody so that's that but it's not intentional i didn't do it on purpose okay i didn't i just don't know how to take care of plants famously orchids are the easiest plants to take care of by you can't even take care of an orchid this is why i don't have children well that's good to know at least contraception yay everybody take contraception on the other note on a happier note you should have at least a minute of silence for the fucking orchid no, on a happier note. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> Look at me. I have shovels for earrings. Yeah, let's go back from the scene of the crime. I have shovels for earrings. I'm gonna put the Etsy shop in the description box. But you might think, why? Why Maya? Or you might follow me on TikTok where I already made a video that might be removed by this point. It is not because I'm interested in soil or archaeology. Although if the Etsy shop owner was to ask me, that is what I would have said. It isn't because even of this, you know, the true crime, wait, let me burp. <laughs> Whoa, that was a violent one. It isn't even about true crime. It isn't even because I want to maybe intimidate somebody and be like, ooh, what am I gonna do with small shovels? With like those things that used to be like little toys, little Lego boys, that used to be in like Kinder Eggs. You know what? Those Kinder Eggs used to be worth their money. They used to be expensive, but the toy you would get in there, you'd be like, I'm not getting rid of this toy ever. Now you get like these stupid animals, Ugh, Kinder Egg surprise. It's just there's no surprise. You don't want the surprise that is in the Kinder Egg right now. And still, even pricier, if we are really, to be honest, what do you want about? Shovels, 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 shovel. So why did I get shovels? Because I wanted to replicate this iconic look. Put it on the screen. Put it on the screen for everybody to see. It's Gale. It's Gale from Bob's Burgers. The most iconic look. But of course, she has dicks for earrings. And I thought, well, I can probably find this somewhere. There are probably shops where I can find that. But the harder option, <laughs> the one that took me much longer because I literally watched this episode like five, six years ago. The option that I have struggled to find is to find something that I can also appear in public with, you know? I can wear these earrings in public and then it would lead to weird questions, but I can leave them, but I can wear them in public. That was probably the longest mic check to date. Well, if that worked, it worked. <laughs> if not, we're not starting this today. I mean, are we gonna start this today? Maybe! But we move. Stop. No more sugar. No more sugar in your system. This is a sideline, but it's on brand, because the brand of this episode is poop. Imagine if we had sponsors. It would probably be like Tushi or some like big dead shit. Okay, so did you ever make eye contact with a seagull just 
as they were about to commit soiling of the ground, just as they were about to expel their poop. The other day, I was walking by in a park, and the seagull was on top of a bench, you know, like how like there's like the back seat thing? Yeah, they were on top of that, and that seagull made eye contact with me, and he probably already had a turtleneck, if they do have turtlenecks, and then, without any announcement, he just expelled something onto the ground. It was like, literally, second. Seconds have passed. It's like, just like that. I was like, well, at least it wasn't my head. But like, I have been scarred for life. I cannot look at seagulls the same way again. Why am I passing by a freaking park where there's a lake, where there are seagulls? They can do such damage. Imagine if that was my hair. It's like wet and nasty. Yeah, no, please give them the details. Give them all of the TMI. You know how trademark has like TM as, as trademark on the, you know, the top right corner of the world? Well, mine would be TMI. If I was a brand, if I had like a proper merch brand, that would be it. Which is like Maya and TMI on the top right corner. Can we continue with the poop story? Like the actual poop story, not the seagull poop story? I bet everybody would benefit from this sideline. You bet, yeah? How much would you bet? Would you even bet a fiver, which is like your top betting point? No. No, I wouldn't. <laughs> Why would you? Why would you? It's a seagull shitting story. Why would you bet anything on it? Also, what are the stakes? What are you betting for or against? This is why I don't play poker. Well, so much to learn, so much about me today. So much about me. Mm -hmm.